and welcome back to Shelf Esteem. I'm your host, Trudy Morton-Cole, and the podcast is back after having been on hiatus for a couple of months, largely because all the people I wanted to line up as guests were kind of busy, and so was I. But uh, we've got some more great episodes coming up, and this week's is a very special one. One of the fun things that happened over the last few months was that my book, Most Anything You Please, got nominated for a competition called Newfoundland and Labrador Reads, which is sponsored by our public libraries, and it was nominated along with books by Jamie Fitzpatrick, Sharon Bala, and Lisa Moore. And I thought it would be great fun on the run-up to that event, which is happening February 28th, that uh, if we got the four of us together in the studio and I talked to these three writers about books that have had a big impact on them as writers. I started off in the usual way by asking everyone what they've been reading lately, and Sharon went first. I just finished uh, Megan Coles's small, small Game Hunting at the Local Coward Gun Club. Yes. Right. Which I read in just basically one sitting. Wow. Yeah. And it was excellent. Yeah. It was so excellent. I think it's the kind of book that rewards um, people who live here. Yeah. Because there's so many... There's so many things in this story that have actually are very recognizable. Mm-hmm. Um... And I, I won't say more. I don't want to ruin it. But it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and now I'm reading Split Tooth. Oh, I read Split Tooth last year. Yeah. yeah. That's an amazing and weird book. It is. I love that there are pictures. Yeah, yeah. I love that I kept not being able to figure out what kind of book this was that I was reading. Yeah. Because you started like, oh, this is like a memoir. There's now poetry. it's not. Now suddenly there's poetry. Yeah. I like the way, I'm not very far into it, but so far it feels like she's taken the hardest, most emotionally difficult parts and put them as poems. Yes. Which yeah. feels like a punch in the gut, but just a one quick one. Mm-hmm. And then you go into something a little bit more prosaic and longer. And it's like, at this point where I am, the characters are like 11-year-old children and yes. they're just getting up to childish stuff. But yeah. there's also darker things happening uh, to them, and mm-hmm. those are given to you in these in the yeah, poetry. poetry. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing book. What else? What is everybody else reading? <clears throat> I have. I'm actually not reading this. I've been listening uh-huh. to audiobooks. I've been listening to a steady stream of Anthony Trollope. Oh, and I love Trollope. Hours and hours and hours because he wrote so much. Uh huh. And what I really love about it is that it is you know outrageously dramatic, and uh-huh. the characters are somewhat hilarious but also um somehow he he you know really has a grip on plot like it's like a soap opera i guess in in certain ways it um but i was like jogging through the woods and there was a fantastic um like just set piece about this woman who had turned to writing novels because she wants to support her family. <laughs> Imagine. Hearty laughter from everyone yeah. who writes novels in the 21st century. So she has a, a ne'er-do-well son who's spending her fortune. and uh, and so, But she's trying to bribe all the reviewers in, of all the major <laughs> newspapers because... You know, she doesn't really care about the novels very much, but she does know that if she doesn't get good reviews... They won't sell. Yeah. yeah. So um, she goes on this big <laughs> diatribe about reviewers uh-huh. and how evil they are and how self-centered they are and how much joy they get in crafting a lovely lie that is, you know, meant to rip the guts out of the out of the writer. And it is... I just was keeling over in the middle of the oh woods, like just laughing till... Tears came out of my eyes. So. <laughs> uh, Trollope is great. I read so much Trollope in grad school because 
I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but when I did the graduate program in English, it seemed that whatever the course was described as covering, the prof would have picked some very narrow aspect of that that they were interested in. So like the course was 19th century novels, but the prof only wanted to teach Trollope, so we only read Trollope. <laughs> so I got a very, very in-depth education in Trollope and then virtually nothing in any other 19th century novel. But uh, yeah, he is great. He's great. I wonder. I, I'm trying to imagine Trollope as, as an audiobook because I don't listen to fiction much. I listen to nonfiction in audiobooks, but it works well in audio for you? Oh, yeah. yeah? It's, it's is like it? it's like being at a play. Oh, I, I mean, bet. Yeah. Is it fantastic. multiple actors? No, it's just, just one. one yeah. And, but like I listen to many of the novels and many of them have similar plots and everything. Yes, but, yeah. but just still, just absolutely delicious and reminding me of how important it is to have plot. Yes. Which you can forget. <laughs> I certainly can forget sometimes for pages and pages at a time. Yeah. What about you, Jamie? What have you been reading? Uh, I most recently finished a couple of things. One was The Red Word, a novel by Sarah Henstra, who I was never familiar with before, but won the most recent Governor General's Award for Fiction. Okay. And I'd uh, also, the other thing that interested me about it was that um, it's about like toxic masculinity, sexual assault on campus, mostly takes place on a university campus. Okay. So it's very politically, you know, of the moment mm -hmm. and potentially quite explosive, but it wasn't very good. I thought oh. it was poorly written. So as a... <laughs> who's, who's Just after we talk like, about reviewers. <laughs> award, like award winners. Like sometimes they appeal to you and sometimes they yes, don't. Yes, that is true. And uh, like I don't really enjoy going public and trashing other people's books but hey she won a big awards yeah so I, i'm not gonna do i any, guarantee i am not gonna do any hurt yeah right? she's not gonna be hurt by this podcast with its massive massive readership so um as a kind of a palate cleanser then i read a collection of short stories by tessa hadley a collection oh, i hadn't read before yeah i just finished that yeah. too and i just finished it last night i Good. think oh, okay why are you guys Excellent. reading that right now I um, bought it last year, and it's just it's been sitting there. One was she's like a, a favorite of mine, so that I, I wanted her something. When you were on the podcast did I? Before, yeah. So she's a favorite of mine. I read everything she does, pretty much. And so if I come off something, I've come off a couple of disappointing books lately, and I thought I'd go for something reliable. And the other was uh, actually you, Sharon, mentioned to right. me that she's got a new novel coming this spring. And I thought, yes. oh, I should catch up on what else I haven't read. No, I and I love her and she's mm -hmm. fabulous. And I finished that book with great satisfaction. So now I feel normal again. <laughs> I feel the same way about her. But what did, did you guys read the last novel? The past? Yeah. Yeah. You liked it? I did. Okay, I love, love, love Tessa Hadley. I believe that her forte is short stories. Hmm. And I have never loved her novels as much as her short stories, but I will also say that her novels are probably better than most people's novels. So <laughs> Her unsuccessful that, ones are yeah, better than yeah. Even her bad ones yeah. are yeah. Yeah. I, I'm so out of the loop because I've never read Tessa Hadley, and she's, she's been on my that, radar ever mm. since she you said. She doesn't need yeah. plot. <laughs> okay. Well, I, like I wouldn't necessarily say that. Uh, I think it's called... It's in Harper's, mm -hmm. so you can get it online easily, and it's it's called The Abduction. Is that oh, yeah, that's right. a great story. It's part of the collection. It's a great okay. story. Amazing short story. Yeah. And and the ending is is just, like, very innovative and brilliant and unexpected yeah. in every mm -hmm. way and beautiful. Okay. That one has a plot. 
That's true, it does. But some of the ones in uh, Bad Dreams... Don't maybe. necessarily have plots. No, they But you cannot stop turning yeah. the pages. I feel like the plot in your story is that you're just pulled along by, like, the next beautiful sentence, and the next, yes. and the next, and the next. But isn't it a character, though? It is, uh, yes. I think it's I think yes. it's a false uh, binary thing. Oh. <laughs> the plot and character are yeah. the same thing. Yeah. I agree. We're, we're, we're always discussing that, and actually, people who write well are doing it both well, and you can't even tell because they're writing yeah. so well. That's, mm. that's sort of what I. It's funny think. that you said that so. about Bad Dream because I had also read a string of not great books in January, and then I just went to my bookshelves and I thought, what is safe? What is, <laughs> what safe? is safe? I read <laughs> it. Uh-huh. I, also th- I had finished a book, and then I thought about you, Trudy. Um, Gaslight. By Stephen Price. No, don't know it. It is like a doorstop uh-huh. of a book. It's huge. It's set in Victorian. It moves between Victorian, London, or maybe Edwardian. I can't remember. But anyway, old times. Mm-hmm. London, Civil War U.S., South Africa. I think that's it. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's plot. It's uh-huh. plot. But it's beautiful. Oh, that does sound great. Spectacular. And I read it over two weekends. And it's one of those books that you sink into in the winter. Mm. And then as you're coming to the end, you think, oh no. I have to leave these people behind. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so when I finished that, then I had this whole stack of books Mm -hmm. in the library. And I just opened each one. I read about 20 pages put aside. And I couldn't Couldn't get into Grab into anything. And then Uh I went back to my bookcase looked around and I picked up the Hillary Mantle the second you know the one that comes after Wolf Hall oh, bring thought, up the bodies. well this yeah. is safe this is safe yes yeah the last book for me that was like the really sinking into and just obscuring the whole world it's always historicals for me that do that um, I've been because I'm writing something set in the 17th century. I've been reading a lot of fiction in that period. And Rachel Kaddish, The Weight Weight of Ink. I don't know if it's about a a Jewish refugee in early 17th century London uh, at the time that that a lot of Jews were leaving other places and coming to England, but then were not super welcome in England either. And and it's about you know a woman who wants to be educated and to learn and to write. And of course, everything about her life makes it impossible for her to do so. And it's, oh, it's so fabulous, so fabulous. And then the other one that I've read, which I'm thinking somebody here probably has, is There, There by Tommy Orange. Yeah, I read that last year. Yeah, yeah I just read that now because everybody was talking about it last year. And I just finished it. And then I recommended it to somebody whose novel, I was unpublished novel I was reading, and said... If you've got a story with a whole lot of points of view and you want to see somebody do it really, really well, there, there is is fabulous for that because he just has all these characters and it's, it's just like, um, it seems like a mess of how I you know who are all these people, how are they connected with each other, why are they even in the same book, and then the way he brings all the threads together, I thought was just so amazing. Such it's a, a very slim book. It is, which is not yeah. what you expect when you think about a huge cast. Yeah, there are multiple yeah. characters. Yeah, he does so many, all these characters and all these storylines, and it's in yeah, it's it's one of those that I read as an ebook. So when I actually picked it up and looked at it in the bookstore, I was like, oh, that is actually quite small. That's amazing how he did all that. Yeah, so that's one that left a big, another one that left a big impact on me lately. So the reason I convened this particular collection of brilliant readers and writers is because we all have books that are nominated for the NL Reads competition. (laughs) Coming up uh, soon, Soon. if you're listening to this when it's released, or maybe you'll listen to it later and it's all in the past, and you'll know which one of our books won NL Reads. Um, But I thought it would be interesting to, to get a group of writers together in the room to talk about 
books that have had an impact on you as a writer. So I kind of threw that question out to all of you to think about. And I guess in a way, I mean, every book you read has an impact on you as a writer because it, you know, you're always, at least I'm always thinking on two levels, like I'm enjoying this story, but there's also the part of my brain that's going, oh, how are they doing this? How are they making that right. work? Yeah. But but anybody have any thoughts about that, of books that have been especially impactful on you? Lisa already stole my first... Uh... <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. yeah my first uh, real reading addiction, like where you remember that you you close the cover on one and you can't wait to grab the mm-hmm. next one by the same person, were uh, kind of a uh, was kind of a combo of Trollope and Jane Austen mm-hmm. after I completed a uh, a course in Victorian literature as an undergrad. I didn't read the books during the course. They were too long. <laughs> of course. But Who's going to read I kept all them. of them? Yeah. You know, it was a big, thick thing. I'm not going to read, you know. Yeah. But in the couple of years following, I plowed through them all obsessively. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had, it's interesting what you said, Lisa, about... Um, how Trollope just has all these characters that he piles the plots onto, and uh, and all, there's always a secret, there's always something missing, mm-hmm. there's always a, a dispute over an estate, right? Mm-hmm. That's very sort of classic 19th century stuff. Uh, and you think of them, and I've often used the phrase as well, a soap opera, right? Mm-hmm. But they're, like, that's a little unfair because the characters, and he switches points of view all the time, Everyone has this really rich in, inner life that mm. often contradicts what they're showing to the world, mm. right? And it's often operating the best possible. I do too. I do too because I've used the same phrase, right? Yeah. And at the same time, I know it's like that's not quite what it is. It's hard to describe to people, yeah. but yeah, they're addictive, mm-hmm. and I can see, especially if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like I did hesitate in my mind, if not in my voice, when I said the word soap opera, yeah. but because it is, yeah totally layered and tied together and magnificent but there is that you know desire to see what's going to happen next that I associate with soap operas yeah and you can so easily picture and even before I knew any of them had been made into like you know masterpiece theater and stuff you know they were exactly cut out for that yes right you know cliffhangers all through yeah yeah and like these great vistas and tableaus of society that he does so nicely and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of made for miniseries. It definitely is, yep. yeah. Well, um, my book that was nominated for um, Newfoundland Reads yes. is a collection of stories. So, Which is titled, everybody should get to say the title yes. of their book at some point. <laughs> Something for Everyone is the name of this uh-huh. story collection. Um, but so... So I guess I have been thinking about short stories Mm -hmm. a lot again. So I had written a collection of short stories before. Actually, two, now that I think of it. (laughs) (laughs) So you have done this before. Lisa has so many books, she can't keep it. No, but I mean, they were, it was a long time. I think there's 10 years in between. So Mm -hmm. returning to short stories uh, was a kind of strange thing to do. Yeah. But one, and it wasn't a decision I made. It's just Mm -hmm. something I fell into. Um, and but it was like remembering why I loved it so much. So mm-hmm. I think, and maybe it has to do with teaching at, at the university because I would teach short stories. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the writers that I totally love in Canada who writes short stories is Juji Gardner, oh, okay. and she's just there's layers and layers and layers of of satire, especially uh, satire of people 
in Vancouver, which oh, I okay. totally love. <laughs> and, and it's very class-based um, satire, but it's just so layered, and it is hilarious. Yes. And she'd be mean. She's never mm. mean. It's just funny. Yeah, but but also, you know, like outrageously lush, and the writing is just so perfect. Every mm. line and 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 shocking. Like every line has it has a something that explodes in it. I mm. find so. I think she's a genius. I just love everything she writes. Mm. Um, but then I think I'm not really a satirist myself. <laughs> so it's one of those things where you. You're reading someone who's doing something that you don't really do, but kind mm-hmm. of, you know, just it's like you're writing against in a certain way, as well as with deep, deep love and admiration. Yeah. Wow. I've never read her. No, oh I haven't. She's very funny. I'll lend you the book. She's very funny. She's, yeah, again, you can read her online too. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a bunch of stories in The Walrus, I think. Um, but then I also return to Mavis Glant all the time oh, because. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think she just has such scope in terms of history and and class, but really focused on women, I think, mm. and women who are breaking free in some way of some, like, social stricture, mm-hmm. um, and also extremely witty, extremely mm. dry, and you have to hear it, you have to listen for it, but it's, it when you do hear it, it's... It's very, very clever. Mm-hmm. And she also, even though it's realism, um, she's got ghosts all the way right. through it. Yeah. Oh, like literal ghosts? Like ghosts. Oh, really? And it's after the Second World War, a, mm-hmm. lot, of, a lot of the work that I'm most excited about mm-hmm. uh, by Mavis Gallant. And so she'll be, like a character will be walking down the street and there's like a, a someone, the ghost of someone hanging from a tree. The body's not oh, wow. actually there. But, you know, someone mm-hmm. who, who was executed in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really interested right now in those writers that slip out of realism, like mm-hmm. a realism that's very mm-hmm. carefully constructed, mm-hmm. and then suddenly something's going on that is supernatural or yes. just a little bit frightening. Uh-huh. Like the Fjord of Fraternity, your story in that collection, which is... It, oh, took, yeah. me while, right. it took me a while to realize that there was something not realistic about this. Mm. <laughs> it just pulled along. Because so much of, the, even the, I think what I would say are the realistic parts or the, the real parts of that story are a little bit, just a little bit left of, a little bit absurd, right? So that when suddenly there's this thing that you're like, no, that's not real. That's no, not- no, 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 no. Now, we've gone <laughs> now we're right in a outside. different landscape, yeah. It's a lot of fun to do that because you know, as writers, mm. uh, we were talking earlier about, like, writing for the stage. And yeah. you are really limited in a certain mm. way by, by the physical space. Yeah. As, it, as you're limited by things for television or even mm-hmm. audio. Right. But on the page, you can go mm. anywhere. Mm. It's such a ridiculous freedom. Yeah. You can yeah. do anything. You can, you, literally. Has anybody read uh, the book Exit West? Yeah. Yeah. That's one to me. Yes. It's like that like it's this incredibly realistic Real story about yeah. about refugees mm-hmm. and and yet there's this I guess you would say magic realism thing where you can open magical doors and step through and find yourself in another country and and that device works so well in that story yeah. because it makes you think 
to me anyway, it made me think, what if people who came as refugees didn't have to go through all the process of traveling, but could just literally show up in your house or in your backyard because these doors can open anywhere. It, it throws all the feelings people have about refugees and immigration into such you know, sharp relief. So it's not like he threw in this fantasy element just for fun. It's It, it really serves the story. I don't know, I found that and really exciting. And the same thing could be said about Colson Whitehead's The Underground. Oh, yes, Whitehead. that's another yes. one that does that. And well. when yeah. you're reading it, um, it I, mm-hmm. I thought... <laughs> I hate to admit it, but I thought, oh my God, I didn't know there was a real <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people had that reaction at first. They're like, wait, no, no, wait. Yeah, yeah. You very quickly yeah. you realize, no, mm-hmm. of course not. But it is so well done mm-hmm. and so believable. And but exactly what you're saying, Trudy. Like, there's a there's a real political power in the imagining of. Yes, a yeah. railway that would have been an exit. Yeah, yeah, because it serves that it serves that purpose within the story. That yeah, and I read those two stories. I read those two books back to back. Oh, really? I, read, I think I read Exit West after um, Underground Railway. Yeah, and what I felt was that both writers did this thing where they had this magic, right? Mm-hmm. The actual train leading the slaves to freedom and these doors. Yeah, and. It's almost like even with magic, I think that what they were trying to show is that even with magic, the harsh reality of these people's situations and the stakes are still equally there. Yes, right? exactly. Because yeah. then they're on this train and, sorry, I'm not giving much away, <laughs> but you know, the yeah. train would have to be, like, there was a problem with the railway yeah, and the train yeah. has to be rerouted and mm-hmm. then they end up somewhere worse and it's... yeah. Yeah, they're still being chased. Yeah, it's, it doesn't make things easier. And the no. same with the doors and Exit West. Yeah. I mean, you think, oh, well, what a quick problem. Short- yeah, exactly. It's not, it seems like a shortcut, yeah. but it's not. That's so interesting, that, that blending of non-realistic elements into really highly realistic stories. Um, you might be uh, familiar with the noted Newfoundland writer, Lisa Moore. <laughs> written a variety, we, I understand she's we've recently gotten back to short stories. But, uh, one thing I noticed from reading... Um, I guess it was when I was reading your most recent collection, Lisa, uh, that I related back to previous stories that I've read, is you often have characters who aren't sure, like it's it's written from their point of view, and either first person or close third person, and they aren't sure if they can trust their senses. I think I've encountered a couple of times where you actually say that, like, you know, Bill wasn't sure if he even trusted what his senses yeah. are. And then there are other times where a similar thing comes in, like you just saw the character just saw something, not sure, did I actually see what I just saw or was that something else? And so it leaves open the possibility of, for the reader to decide that, you know, somebody, all of us at times are innocently not sure if we've remembered what happened last night the way we remembered it or, mm-hmm. or an hour ago. If you're under a lot of stress for some reason, as characters and stories often are, that becomes even more uh, more dangerous and the stakes are raised. And sometimes it can get weird enough that you think, wait now, maybe there's something like off, not quite real going on in this story anyway. Mm-hmm. And that affects your relationship with the main character. And uh, mm-hmm. I've noticed that in your stuff in particular. I think I've noticed it in other people's work too. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I was recently reading you, and it came up. <laughs> I have also been recently reading you. I just, just finished well, some. Well, like YG guys. <laughs> it's funny, though, because I, I, I struggle with short stories. Like, there's a lot of short stories I like, but any short story I really like, 
I always wish it was a novel because I want there to be more of it. Oh. And so it's it's a shock to no one that my favorite short story in your latest collection is the the one that's basically a novella, the last one, Skywalker. That's my favorite too. Yeah. Really? Oh, oh that's, my, yes. I love that. I, mean, I love that so much. But Every story was my favorite until I got to that one. Then I was like, this one's blowing the rest of the way. So it's good that you put it at the end. So yeah. save the best for last. But I just, with that one, I just loved the, the taking of a, of a small moment mm -hmm. and how it, it just spirals out to so yeah. many things in the past and in the future of this character. It was just, it was beautifully structured. So. And but, even that whole tension of the character being there and having to walk over that overpass at night. Mm. I wonder, too, like, does that, I guess, I'm kind of getting back to what you said about Megan's book at the beginning, mm -hmm. about how it might have more resonance for people who live here. Like, my immediate yeah. thought was that, oh, geez, yes, I've walked through that skywalk at night, and I yeah. totally get that. Um, I, I, I love stories that are really, and I think this is true of, like, all of your books. <laughs> um, they're really, really rooted in a specific well, place. Well, as well. Yes. Oh, yeah, yours yeah. Um, but But that also have something universal to offer yes. that you know someone who hasn't walked through that specific skywalk or i mean so many people say to me for example about my book most anything you please oh that reminds me so much of the corner store it was on the corner yeah. where you know next <laughs> to my yeah, nan's house could be and that's why yeah like I, I i hope it also has resonance for people who didn't shop at that particular <laughs> corner store but i think that's that's another thing too is that grounding something in a really specific place and yet hopefully having something you know universal about it I think as long as you ground something in a very specific place, it will automatically have universality. So that, you know, walking over the skywalk, you know, um, Joyce yeah. in The End of Music has so many of those moments as well. You know, when she's in that, um, Joyce flies it, so this is the 1950s, Joyce mm -hmm. gets in a little cigarette plane and flies from Gander to St. John's, and then she goes shopping with her girlfriends. Mm -hmm. And she's in that one store alone, and she suddenly has like a, a weird moment where she thinks, it's not safe here with this one man and me, and she gets out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a moment so many women. Yeah, it's super specific, yeah. but also super yeah. universal. Mm -hmm. We're talking about ourselves. <laughs> we're supposed to. Oh, I thought we were talking about others. We can books. talk about ourselves and others. Well, and we just start by talking about each other. We're really talking about each other more than ourselves. Fair enough. But but back <laughs> uh, back to the thing of of books that inspire you. Um, do any of you read books about writing? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a whole shelf. Yeah, yeah. And what are what are some of your favorites? Uh, so or, the Janet Burroway, which is what is it called? How to write. <laughs> Here's the textbook on writing. How, how to write fiction. I can't Writing remember fiction? what it's called, but you know what? That book is super expensive. It's so expensive. Is and it? Yeah. It's because it's excellent and mm -hmm. it's taught in creative writing classes oh, all okay. over. So it's a textbook. It's like over $100. Oh, yeah, well, so it's I a textbook just, thing. Yeah. I just recommended it to someone um, whose manuscript I had looked at and I said, you know, this is a great book. Uh -huh. And she said to me, oh, I just found the newest edition, which is quite a bit slimmer. And she found it used or something for $12. And I thought, oh. has have they taken away all of the short stories maybe out of it? That's the only way I could think of oh. where it would get slimmer. It is really expensive. And when I was looking, I was looking to try to get it used or something. And in the end, I just sucked it up and bought it. And I haven't mm. regretted it. <laughs> that one, um, Forster's Aspects of the Novel. Mm -hmm. um, I can like picture them all now. James Woods. Uh, How, fiction works. How, How Fiction Works. How Fiction Works. 
The one, Robert Olin Butler, the one that Jamie told me about. That's called From Where You Dream. From Where yeah. You Dream, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody recommended that yeah, really highly to me. forward from Janet Burroway in that. Uh-huh. There's John Gardner's. I don't know that one. John Gardner's, I, I can't remember, but it's yeah. a how-to. And, um, well, of course, Stephen King's. On right. writing, yeah. The Wonder Book. Have you seen this? It's no. a It's a feast for the eyes. Uh, to be honest, I, I got it and I still haven't, you know, gone through it, mm-hmm. but it's a how-to manual and it's illustrated and Ooh. that's all I'll say for now. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. We'll keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. I've read, um, most recently a book that's just called Story by Robert McKee and okay. it is targeted at screenwriters. Hmm. And is considered. I'm not in this. Ra- I'm not in that racket, so I don't know. Oh, I was just about to ask. Are you reading it because you're no. writing a screenplay? Apparently, it's one of considered one of the sort of bibles of screenwriting. He's very focused on form and structure, uh-huh. and makes a very good argument that uh, that mastering form and structure and genre is not the same as limiting yourself. It actually frees you to to uh, to write what you can write and to fully explore the topic that you want to explore, the story that you want to explore. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I haven't. I've read it because it's been recommended a couple of times uh, in terms of that, in mm-hmm. terms of structuring a story and that it can work in just about any genre uh, or any I should say any form any form of writing not just screenwriting mm-hmm. and also because you know you read these books you can take away what you want to take away you oh for sure rest, yeah right? you take so, away what's useful but it's you. pretty impressive I read it twice mm-hmm. <laughs> that's true right because if you think about like the exit west and the underground railroad that you could call those what fabulous fantasy mm-hmm. magic realism real. yeah 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 it doesn't limit you. No. It's also really interesting to read essays by writers, yes. mm. creative nonfiction essays that are not how-to, but you see glimmers of the writing life. Yes, of their writing through. life, yeah. So I just read, I've, I've been dipping into these two collections of personal essays by Saul Bellow and Javier Marias, mm. who is, Span- is a Spanish writer. And Saul Bellow was talking about uh, Mozart, and he was saying that Mozart didn't really care at all about making money or his reputation or any of the politics around music at all, that all he cared about was play, that he just played. And when I read that, which was at 5 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) uh, you know, it really reminded me of the joy of writing. Like, the, I mean, Mm, he's playing music. Mm -hmm. But it was like he had to take care of the money, according Mm -hmm. to Saul Bellow and all these other things, (laughs) in order to live. But that was like all he, he was only doing that to play. Mm. And by play, I don't mean play the piano. I mean just play with life. Mm. You know, like be free of the idea of work. And just do what is pleasurable. Mm. And I think, I, I felt very freed after I read that. And, and, and as if, yes, actually, that's what it is. Mm. It is joyous, mm-hmm. you know, and being reminded of that is important, I think. Mm. On the days when it doesn't feel joyous? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's because... Um, sorry, to, to, just to wrap up what Lisa was saying, though. This was Saul Bellow was writing... Just a collection of essays, and, uh, and I one, just this one addressed Mozart in particular. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
Mm. What were you going to say, Sherry? It's true, though. You know when you're uh, struggling with something and then it it stops bringing you joy? Uh-huh. Sometimes that is a hint. That yes. You, the path you're going down is not the path one, mm. the right one. Go back and try to find. Because then when you... When you're writing, even if you know it's kind of garbagey because it's the first draft, but you're just enjoying yourself. Mm, mm. Just keep going. It's a good question. Should writing be pleasurable? I mean, I do think it should. I mean, I think yeah. there's a... Pro- I don't know. Is it just me or is there a point at in every project where you hate it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, several points. Several <laughs> points. I mean, I think there's a point where you, f- you feel fear and despair yeah. because mm. it feels like it's not going to come yes. together. Yeah. I've yeah. been through that for everything yeah. I've ever written, mm-hmm. like whether yeah. it's 500 words or, <laughs> or yeah. 80,000, but... Um, that's necessary, I think. Well, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe that's because every, every time you write something, you're exploring new ground, mm. and and it's terrifying to mm. explore things that you don't know how to do. Yeah. Yeah. Every single time you write something, you're writing something you don't yes. know how to write. Yeah, that's true. That's true. If it all rolled off you, yeah. And you thought, this is so, so great. That's a very, very bad sign. If it's just rolling out of you, just but, but like maybe clockwork, if it's, it's, if it's probably just, not a good sign. Yeah. yeah. But if it's all being dragged out of you, maybe, like you said, maybe that's yeah, a bad sign, to too. Yeah, there middle ground. I, yeah. I have to think that there's a... You, you, you dissed a well-known writer earlier, or at least one who had, who had won an award. So I'll diss someone who is definitely never going to hear this podcast or care about it and, and has the money to not worry about it. Danielle Steele. <laughs> because my uh, my friend has this book of short pieces by writers about writing, and so one time we were we were away at a writing retreat, and she started reading this thing by Danielle Steele, which is the most, as you would expect, melodramatic thing. But it's about how you know I sit down at my keyboard to begin to write, and I sit there in agony, and it feels as if blood is pouring out of my fingertips, and I force myself to sit there for eight hours, and it goes on and on and on about the hours and hours of agony, and I just. <laughs> Hours. Oh, I said, at the end of this, all you've got is a Danielle Steele novel, which is the real tragedy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess there's a middle ground. Like, it should be fun. It's obviously not going to be fun all the time. But yeah, if it feels like a horrible grind all the time, then that's probably a sign that you're, maybe you're doing the wrong thing. There's a thing um, that I just heard about a few weeks ago called the hype cycle, which is... Um, uh, a cycle that this it's not really a cycle it's more like a roller coaster it's like a graphed out on a you know mapped mm-hmm. out on a graph um, and it's supposed to apply to technology so new technology oh, yeah. and the hype around it and how there's like this peak of expectation mm-hmm. so there's the spark the idea uh-huh. I think this also applies to writing yeah. there's the spark when you're like hmm this is good and then you get going and it's like that peak of expectation this is the most genius thing it's going to be fantastic you know what it's going to look like at the end uh, and followed quickly by the pit of despair. I think it's like the trough of <laughs> despair or something. And then it sort of goes back up. And then, anyway, it ends up being a little bit more mellow. But mm. I think um, it's really helped me to mm. think about when I hit that peak of expectation. I, you sort of need that, you need that hype because it helps you sit there and write for a long time if you're enjoying yourself. Yeah. But then eventually you hit a roadblock, you know, where you think, oh, this is the worst thing. I don't know how to fix this. It's awful. I don't know what's going next. And then that's important, too, because it forces you to sit there and grind away at it. And then you get to another little peak and then mm. you come down again. And, yeah. I wish I, I think I have this right. I think it was Andrew Piper who tweeted this novelist, Canadian novelist. 
uh, but I might have it wrong, so I apologize if, if I got the wrong person. But he, he sent out a tweet once, said, I'm at that point now in the novel where I've passed, this will never work. Yeah. I'm approaching, <laughs> this is great, don't blow it, which means you were wrong from the start is just around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's really so accurate. That's yeah. really accurate. Yeah. yeah, writing the novel does have its own hype cycle, for sure. But I think you have, like, uh, I still consider myself pretty new to it, right? Like, I've knocked out a couple of things, and I keep trying, but I still think of myself as a bit of a rookie. But I've started to recognize now that there are different varieties of stomping around the house in frustration and <laughs> being cranky or family when they finally come home for dinner. And you know when you're into sort of a difficult, frustrating, you kind of know, you half know, you're always doubting yourself, but you half know when you're into a difficult, frustrating point with something that you're still, that some part of you still is determined to make work versus when you think, actually, this chapter kind of belongs in the dumpster and <laughs> you might not admit it to yourself that afternoon, but you'll eventually get there. I think yeah. there are different kinds of, of frustration. You know? Yeah, yeah, there are. Yeah. But there is something, too, that is, um, you know, ha that is about... This is where I am right now, I guess. That is about freeing yourself and allowing yourself um, permission. Like the word permission is very mm -hmm. important to me right now. And I am writing this stuff that I'm just thinking to myself, you know, this will never see the light of day. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, probably outrageously bad, but I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to, it's kind of interesting to me, so I'm going to do it, yeah. you know, right yeah, now. Yeah. That's and very freeing. It is. Think, I'm yeah. just going to write this for myself. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm. I, I am thinking of it as as a not the yeah. novel I'm writing. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just. Well, like you're allowing yourself the possibility that maybe nothing will come of it, and you're just doing your thing. You're yeah. Not, I, you're not thinking about all that. Like, down what the road happens stuff. if I have no censor? That's right. what yes. I have to ask yeah. myself. Yeah. At some points, when I sit down, I have to say, what happens if I really, honestly, was not afraid, and wrote. Yes. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give it a whirl. <laughs> I feel that something pretty good is probably yeah. going to happen because this is Lisa know. Moore telling herself this to, to is, just let uh, it go. I'm at the peak of expectation now. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like I know the the whole you know the shitty first draft thing, which comes from Anne Lamott's Bird by yeah. Bird, which you is just, my favorite book I'm oh, writing. Yeah, like, oh, it yes. get that gets a lot of flack, and some people say, "Don't you know? Don't say your first drafts are shitty." But you do have to are. give yourself that permission just to say it's okay if it's not, yeah. even if it doesn't go anywhere. I just have to get it out there and see what happens with it. And, you know, uh, I think that's what, to me, that's what the shitty first draft thing is about is just saying I, I attach no expectations to this. I can, I can step back from expectations around what I think it's going to become or how other people might receive it and just try it to, to see where it goes, you know, follow it to see where it goes. Are you the kind of writer who has a hard time writing new work versus revisions? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I do, yeah. I think. I spend a lot more time revising old stuff than I do writing new stuff, I yeah, think. Yeah, me too. And so I, that for me, I feel like it doesn't, I just have to get this first draft out there mm -hmm. because that's the hard part. And then you've got something you and can work with. And something yeah. I can work with. And even if that means cutting, 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 and then writing new mm -hmm. stuff, mm -hmm. at least I have something. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's hard to, the blank page is really the hardest. Pretty thing. terrifying. It's thing. really yeah. terrifying. Yeah. So, uh, for the three of you guys, I have mm -hmm. this question. Um, what, how much does the 
does it matter on the level of the sentence for you? Like oh, a lot. Yeah, equal. Even when you're rest. just vomiting out the first no, draft. No, no, no. First draft doesn't matter. First draft doesn't matter. Although I say that, and then you know the stuff I mm-hmm. bring to the meeting usually <laughs> cleaned up. It's rare that I'll come, and if I do come with something really raw, I'm just going to read this out loud so mm. it's not written down. I think my answer is always not as much as I feel like it should, but it's something I'm always striving towards. But your dialogue is so pitch perfect. Like I feel like I feel like it does matter to you very much <laughs> on the level of the sentence. Maybe more with the... dialogue than with, with the rest of it. But I like I honestly and I'm not a mystical writer at all. I don't believe in the muse or anything, but I, I really do feel like dialogue. There's an element of these are just the voices in my head oh, talking yeah, no, to me. Totally. Um yes. and you know, I you know, I don't believe I'm literally just transcribing them, but I find writing dialogue so much easier because and especially I think with a lot of and this is harder with the project I'm doing now, but with stuff like Most Anything You Please, where it's set in the very recent past in a world Mm -hmm. that I'm very familiar with, I'm writing about the kind of people that I know and grew up listening to them talk, Mm -hmm. so it's really easy to imagine their voices. But, of course, I do still go back and, you know, polish it and um, take out... The vast majority of my writing process is taking out crap that didn't need to be there in the first place. I just Mm -hmm. way overwrite and then prune it. So for me, on the level of a sentence, a lot of it is getting rid of the sentences I don't need and trying to find the one good one in the heart of it. I try to write those first draft pieces where uh, you just get everything down on paper and then go back and write it for real, which Mm -hmm. is kind of what you're doing if you get in... If you you go with the shitty first draft theory, right? But... um, and, and you'll go into it sometimes thinking, okay, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to write this little scene this afternoon. You know, Ed and Marianne plus the cat's got the tumor. And I know where the, I know where it's all at at the beginning. And I know the purpose of the scene and where it's all at at the end. And you kind of have that. So I can just, I can day. knock it out, right? Yeah. But I won't. I'll obsess over the sentences as I go. And mm. by the afternoon, the afternoon, I'll only have a quarter of it written. Because I was determined to get this little bit kind of, you know, to say what I want to say. So I kind of try not to obsess over the sentences, but I sort of do all the time. Mm-hmm. And I can't... This, um, right? You write with a computer, even the first first draft? Almost always, yeah. Almost do you write always. by hand, first draft? Yeah. yeah, so yeah. If, I, if I start, everything starts by hand, and then it's hard to obsess when you're by hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But once I transcribe that initial onto the computer then it's very easy to obsess because mm. you can cut and paste. You can write a line five times. Yes. <laughs> the program invites you to yes. Yes. constantly. Yes, it invites you to be a perfectionist. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That must be what's going For on. For a long time, I used I to write on an alpha. Right. So I used my first drafts on an alpha smart Neo, which was this, it was this, it's it's really old technology now. It's it was like a word processor that could only do one thing, and it was actually designed for use in kids for in schools. I think for kids with learning disabilities, or I don't know if that was designed for. It was used a lot that way. It had a tiny screen, and all you could see was four or five lines of text at a time. But then it was storing it all in its tiny brain, and you could download oh. it to your computer later. And it was great because I type much faster than I write, so I don't like writing by hand right. uh, but it didn't give you that full screen that invited you to try to go back and edit and in fact it's hmm. impossible to edit on an alpha smart neo anyway i've eventually <laughs> lost the charger cord for it and i don't use it and that's anymore. the end of it yeah, yeah. The end of the story. <laughs> but it was that same thing of like just giving me a tiny window and i could only see what i was writing and i didn't have that urge to go back and uh, and, and work on it as i was writing so it was a good tool for a while <laughs> Why do you ask? Yes, why do you ask this interesting question? I, I, I think just because I think it, you know, like, you could argue that uh, the if it's not there at the level of the sentence, it 
well, the, what, whatever way you're writing the sentence changes the, the content. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, I'm just, but, you know, like, if, if you are completely stuck on the level of the sentence in a first draft, then maybe you're losing all kinds of spontaneity or mm-hmm. authenticity oh. of voice or, like, there are all these different things that have to be um, balanced, like, the speed, when, when you're taken up in the, what they call the dream of fiction, mm-hmm. you know, like if you're stopping to get the sentence right, yeah. you, you'll lose it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but at this, but the merit, the, the perfect marriage is when you see that dream so vividly. And this mm. happens like probably two seconds every week. <laughs> if you're lucky, if I'm lucky. Anyway, when you see it vividly, sometimes the language just rises up to meet yes. it. Mm. And yes. it's, it's pretty well phrase. good mm-hmm. when you're there, yeah. you know? You know what happens to me? I, I just I've just re- been revising a book. I'm in the middle of revising. This thing happens to me over and over. Where I'll be reading a scene I've written probably months ago, and I'll be like, "Oh, this would be a really good turn of phrase to use here. I should say that. I'll put it in, and two paragraphs down, there it is. There it is. I, yes. I, I already, I already <laughs> had that. To me that too. To me. I'm yeah, glad yeah. to know that happens yeah. to other people too. Yeah. It's like yeah. yeah, there's a reason I thought that was a good phrase for right here. That's that's or because it's there. I will have written longhand a month ago mm-hmm. a scene. And it's like, a, yeah, it's it's from a, a diary a month ago. Mm-hmm. And then I'm writing it out. And then I go back to the diary. And it's almost exactly the same words yes, from yeah. in a paragraph from a month before, yeah. you know, when I put them side by side. Because they were the right words all along. Sharon, I like to think that's why. Sharon, didn't I hand you guys an early, like a completed draft, but still pretty uh, kind of raw of my novel, like a couple of years ago, where like the main character Joyce, like she breaks up with her boyfriend twice, about three chapters apart, or something. <laughs> yes, I feel like and it's kind of the correct. same scene. <laughs> yes, yes, and like I hadn't caught it myself. <laughs> Or it was something else. It was a significant thing, yeah. and Have it happened twice, twice, about yeah, 90, pa- about 90 <laughs> pages of prayer, right? And I didn't know it was there. Oh, my That's one of the risks did. of uh, twining together. Yeah, twining yeah, things, together. things together. Yeah, together. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. In an involved. early book, I once killed off a very minor character Uh-oh. twice. Same person died, <laughs> Same person. 100 pages apart. Best part, nobody, including me, noticed and went to publication that way. Fortunately, it went into a second edition, and I was able to fix it, but yeah. I once put a mistake about playing a 120s, the card game, uh-huh. in a book. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And, <laughs> never stop hearing about it. Thousands <laughs> of people have told you about that mistake. Well, what about that card game? It's <laughs> the wrong thing to get wrong in this town. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Anything you get wrong that people have specific local knowledge about, uh, people will, will they'll be. They'll go for Yeah, you, for yeah. sure, yeah. I'm laughing because Jamie just had a comment about this story oh. that may or may not have been wrong in his book. What was it? What was it? The Stratocaster or the Telecaster? Oh, right. You get a Stratocaster wrong, James. I got oh a gosh, Telecaster wrong. a guitar mistake? Wrong. Oh, what was So I, I, I was really, really careful. I even went to the, like, a, uh, I guess it was Long and McClade to, to look at guitars. <laughs> uh, because there's a, you know, one of the characters in my book has this guitar that basically he loves and, and that is kind of his tool through life. Mm-hmm. And I, ha- I had him buy, let's see. I had him purchase a three a Telecaster, a Fender Telecaster with three pickups. Apparently they don't exist. You can only oh. get them with two. This is how it was explained to me the other night, I think. <laughs> it's, so, all, it's all the same to me. Like I have no yeah, idea. I Someone know, just I had know. to tell you that though. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was a message passed on to me. <laughs> By the way, he's loving the book, but. But. <laughs> uh, I could see one of the musicians in my family doing that, honestly. So. I put a Petro Canada in my book that uh, in the world of the book, Petro Canada was there in the 40s. Oh, but in our real world, it wasn't. Uh, uh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Can I ask another question? Yeah. Yes, go right ahead. Um, so uh, this is a, you know, I was on, I was on stage with a writer, and so, and it's the somehow it came up. I guess I was talking about that story you were talking about about Sky yes, yeah. Walk, where you know there's a there's a rapist, and so it's mm. it's very much about gender politics mm -hmm. in yes, a certain yeah. way. And I was describing, you know, trying to write this while I was on stage I was sort of taken by surprise by the question mm -hmm. and um, and so this writer that I was on stage with said um, after I had spoken he said well I don't write political then you ah. write. what are you writing postcards no you do write political but you just your, your just politics is so much your you. default you don't even realize but it. so my question is like how aware are we Especially now, like in the in this moment when the entire world seems to be getting darker and darker and darker, maybe that's like how aware are we of the politics? Like, especially if we're talking about the dream of fiction and making it real and doing all that. Because I I listened to that guy and I thought, well, first I thought yes, actually your work is political, mm -hmm. but you're you're not paying attention you're not to acknowledging it. it. Yeah. You're not, ignoring it. Yeah. yeah, you don't care about that aspect of it. Or but you're it, so deep into whatever your own worldview is that you don't realize it yeah. is political. Yeah. It's, it's such political, a default right. you don't recognize it as a worldview. But I also think that, you know, aesthetics are important and that that is often what's driving me when I'm mm -hmm. writing rather than a political, like, message. I think we're, we all probably, you know, are, are experiencing that when we're writing, we're we give over to some kind of involuntary image. Unconscious mm -hmm. thing yeah. So yeah. how how aware are you? How in control of that are you? Does it matter when you're writing or mm -hmm. after or before or I was walking down um, Elizabeth Elizabeth listening to a podcast. I think I was like on, I don't know, maybe draft four or five of the boat people. Mm -hmm. And in this podcast, someone was saying that women don't write political books. And at that point, I had not realized that's what I was doing. I was just writing a story, mm. which I didn't think anyone was going to publish. So I didn't think <laughs> too much about it. And I remember stopping like at the corner at the lights and like pausing the podcast and thinking, it's not true. I'm writing a political book. So that's when I realized it. Yeah. Um, but now I'm writing something else. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, th there's politics in here. Because now I'm more aware of what I'm doing mm. but I think also that if you're a thinking person your books are always going to have some politics oh, because yeah. you are thinking about politics mm -hmm. all the time yeah. and politics isn't just um, politicians on stage asking for votes no. it's our existence it's, our, it's everything it's the way we see the Jane world Austen and other was people. writing political yeah. books everyone's yeah. writing absolutely no books. I agree I'm surprised you got that far into the boat people with that yes. video. Yes, so. boat people is such a political. It is so explicitly yeah. political. Yeah. yeah, I think I was. I mean, I think for a long time I was trying not to write the parts of the book that were, you know, yeah. the political parts of the book. 
But also, I just was writing and mm -hmm. not thinking it was ever going to get seen by anyone. So, uh, after the book came out, mm -hmm. and after you toured everywhere with it, and I know you're still mm -hmm. touring, did you become aware of things that were in the book that you hadn't been aware of? Uh, yes, but not the political things. So you were very aware of. Oh, yeah. 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 And now I feel like all I do is talk politics. <laughs> in fact, I'm going out to uh, Growing Room, which is a festival in uh, Vancouver. And for the first time, I'm going to get to be on a panel and talk about the panel is called something like uh, love or kinship, the, the ties that bind. And we're just talking about like love in the books. So you don't and have to talk about I, politics. I mean, that is also yeah. politics, probably. But for the first time, I'm actually starting to talk about, and it's been a year now. Yeah. <laughs> it's rare that I don't end up talking about politics. Well, yeah. the, the, the confluence of your book and this particular moment yeah. in history, of course, is very, yeah. you know, it's very potent. It's something I've been thinking about a lot, because to me, the overtly political thing in my writing is that I'm always looking for women's stories that haven't been told. And I, you know, very explicitly write historical fiction as a feminist because I'm interested in that. But then sometimes that makes me blind to other aspects. Like the the new project that I'm working on now is about John Guy's colony at Cupid's and it was triggered by the the note in historical record that in the third year of the colony they brought out a ship from England with 70 goats, 10 heifers, two bulls and 16 women. Uh, and that whole <laughs> 16 women, 16 women no names, no right. no right. a sense of who they were, why they were going, what their connection was, just they're listed like along with the livestock. So that obviously was a trigger, a huge trigger for me to write a book. Were there women here? There were not. No, there were 39 men here for two years, and then they shipped 16 women along with some with more the heifers. Yeah, with the heifers. With the heifers, yeah. yeah. Is, that the moment, is that the moment you're writing about? Uh, that's, that starts. That's what starts. Wow, the fantastic. But, and mm -hmm. I'm fascinated with it, but in the middle of it, of course, I'm also realizing I'm also writing a story about a group of colonizers, about people who were coming oh, yeah. here to settle on someone else's mm -hmm. land and believed that they had an absolute right to. And they were the first to the first that we know of to have contact with the Beothic. So that's got to be a piece of it, too. That's a whole other political piece that I hadn't thought about when I started. But then once I was into the story, I was like, well, you can't write this story and not address that whole issue, you know, too. And, and mm -hmm. that these were people who quite casually referred to the natives of the country as savages because mm -hmm. that was how they had been taught to see them. So, yeah. Sometimes the political aspects of your writing reveal it as self as it goes along, I think. Sometimes revealing as it goes along, and sometimes um, really inherent in the writing so that you don't recognize it when you start out. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't even recognize it when you were writing about a boatload Yours of refugees. Is political too. So, I wanted to write when I started writing The End of Music, I really wanted to write, just like, to borrow the phrase you just used right now, uh, a, st a woman's story or a women's story that I felt like hadn't been told yes, or hadn't been yeah. given enough credit. And, but I didn't say, and that, you're right, just by making that decision, you're making, it's a political act. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was literally thinking of, because the big chunk of it is set in the town I grew up in. Mm -hmm. All these women that I knew growing up, you know, my friend's parents, and, yeah. and you'd talk to these women, you'd talk to Mrs. So-and-so from up the road, and mm -hmm. Mrs. Hicks, who, you know, who's a friend, you know, you go to school with her son and stuff, and they'd tell you all these stories, right, about what it was like to live in that, in Gander in mm -hmm. the 50s, and I thought, those stories haven't been told. I want to invent a character that encompasses a lot of that, and encompasses a lot of, like, you know, legit grievances that these people had, mm -hmm. hopes and dreams that they had, all 
the rest of it, right? Which adds up to something political. But if I'd started out talk thinking about it that way, I don't think it would have come together at all. But I read it immediately like that. Like, I guess partly because of, you know, what I was saying about Mavis Gallant and all these women who were, who were released from, like, very strict ways of living after mm-hmm. the Second World War where they were crossing borders with, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, passports that were probably faked or whatever, escaping and reinventing themselves. And I feel that your character who goes to Gander and is freed to live a life and, you know, a new kind of life for a... Yeah, yeah, a new kind of life for a woman. And she's inventing it as she goes. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think I really approached that book through... I mean, not entirely, of course, because it's also very steeped in Newfoundland and everything. But through that notion of women who, at a particular space, time, and place in history, are set free from the strictures that are normally yes. placed on them. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that in Alice Munro, too. Mm. I yes, think I would compare. Sure. I could would compare poorly to Alice Perot, but <laughs> there's a all. lot of that. There's a lot of that in there in, yeah. in what she does. A totally different context than Mavis Gallant, yeah. or somewhat different. No, context. but she does it too. Yeah. yeah, women are always escaping small yes. places, yeah. or trying and failing, or trying or, to yeah. escape, or whatever. Yeah. 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 And ending up being ex-murderer. <laughs> 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 in her case, even the parts in um, the end of music, all the parts that take place in the airport, I feel like are of politics the way that everyone speaks to each other about other characters um you know and there are all these like groups of people who come on planes there are those like mm-hmm. refugees who come from is it hungary yeah yeah there's that little trinket that um that joyce has which is like is it the jewelry box which it, Given to her by, by a, a real Arab or something. <laughs> yes, a real Arab. <laughs> Turns out it as her husband was puts not it. Not at all. Yeah. Like all of yeah. that. There's little things yeah. that I think um, everything is politics. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's political overtones and all that. Same thing in the not so explicit, explicitly political scenes of your book. The stuff that's ostensibly about personal life yeah. is all mm-hmm. colored by that. And really, um, yeah, if you think about it long enough. There's no escaping sort of our political existence, even when you drop into the corner store. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and in that one, I was uh, kind of explicitly to addressing the whole the post moratorium Newfoundland and that world that anyone of my age lived through, which is also a very, you know, a very political thing to to talk about. Yeah, through a place, through a setting where, like, which is one of our public squares. Yes, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But fast becoming. disappearing yes yeah yeah well folks we have done exactly what i hoped we would started off by talking about books moved into talking about writing and our own writing and uh, it's been a great conversation did anybody have anything to add that they wanted to say but didn't get to say i have one piece okay uh when you were asking us about like books that uh that have been a great influence on you mm. and that kind of thing. I think a lot of that has to do with timing. Yes. So if you read a book at a certain point as opposed mm-hmm. to five years yeah. later or five years before. And I think sometimes the most dangerous books are the ones that you love and you think you like to work to write like that. Oh, yeah. So because one of the ones I plucked off the shelf this week and I read it like 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, is called The Sweet Shopkeeper. And it's by Graham Swift, who's one of those British guys from that generation of British guys who all write well and often write about, you know, unfulfilled, sad men. (laughs) 
Um, and I remember reading and absolutely loving that book because I absolutely loved the character. And I came away from it thinking plot doesn't matter. What really matters is to create a life on the page that is yes. as fantastic mm. as this, which was a terrible thing to do because plot does matter. And in <laughs> fact, characters are revealed through their plot and they had to act on something and something has to act on that. So, you know, so I wrote pages and pages of boring shit after that <laughs> because I loved the book so much. And when I cracked it this week for the first time in years and kind of didn't, you know, I didn't read it, but I browsed through it. I remember it well anyway. Of course, it's blocked with all kinds of interesting things that happen mm. and things that sort of push at the main character, mm. this guy, the title character, and things that he pushes back against and th all kinds of stuff that you find out about him. But because it's written so beautifully and richly and it gets you so interested in this single main character... I missed all that. You focused on I was it as so, being just about character. Yeah, because I was so drawn into the book because it's mm -hmm. so because it's so good. So that's a word of warning. <laughs> it's a good word <laughs> regarding good word the of books warning. you love. <laughs> this book I'm writing now is is about a writer, and I've never written about a. I've never had a writer mm. before. Oh, that's interesting. So it lets mm -hmm. me talk about other books, mm -hmm. you know, because yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, all that might end up being cut, <laughs> but. I have been reading uh, D.H. Lawrence, and I had forgotten how much I loved D.H. Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And I think the things that I read when I was 20 or 18, mm -hmm. whatever was going on, I was such a sponge. I could really, mm -hmm. like, feel and see and smell and taste everything in those books. Mm -hmm. And D.H. Lawrence, returning to him, it has it's proven to be quite a... Like, just as thrilling as it was mm. when I read it when I was 18. Mm. I never liked D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's my turn to <laughs> crap on him. Yeah, well, he definitely won't be listening to this, so. Uh, yeah. no, poor D.H. Uh, poor D.H. <laughs> that's interesting, though, in terms of books read at that that time in your life. For me, one that's that's usually like that, and that does reward going back and rereading it, is Margaret Lawrence's The Diviners. Yes. Which, to me, mm. is the best book about being a writer that I've ever read. I mean, it's about a lot of other things too, but it is it is a book about the the developing imagination of a writer. And uh, I read it when I was probably in my early 20s and it had this huge impact on me. And then I picked it up a few years ago and thought, is this going to hold up as well mm. as I read? Yes, it does. Thank yeah. goodness. The I forgot that part of it, that she's yeah. a writer. Oh, yeah. yeah it's I a forgot huge part of that it. completely, but that book also had a huge effect yeah. on me. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to look mm. at it again now. Yeah. Look at it again from the perspective of writing about a writer, and it's, it's, it's really interesting what she does. If nobody else has any other last thoughts, then I want to say thank you so much for this conversation. It has been great and wide-ranging in all the ways I hoped it would be. And as for NL Reads, may the best book win. <laughs> or the book that gets the most votes, most likely. Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Thank you. Anyway, thank, thank you. you so thank much. You. That was great. Thanks. That wraps up my conversation with Sharon Bala, author of The Boat People, Lisa Moore, author of Something for Everyone, and Jamie Fitzpatrick, author of The End of Music, and all three of their books, along with my book, Most Anything You Please, are up for the NL Reads competition. If you're listening to this before February 28, 2019, then uh, just search online for NL Reads. It's sponsored by the Newfoundland and Labrador Public Libraries, and you can get involved. You can go to the live event or vote online for your favorite book, and check out all these books. They're all great. If you're interested in not just our books, but any of the books we talked about in this podcast, go 
to my website, TrudyMorganCole.com, click on the Shelf Esteem link, and it'll take you to a blog post where we'll give you links to pretty much everything we talked about. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll be back in a couple more weeks with some more great guests. And until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem.